hold hands and close your eyes. It's half past midnight, and you're listening to the Ghost Story Guys. Welcome to the Ghost Story Guys. I'm Brennan Storr. I'm Paul Bestel. And this is a show where we talk about spooks, specters, and all the other things watching us from the shadows beyond the campfire. Some conversations only make sense after the sun has set, and this is most definitely one. Thanks for tuning in. This is episode number 171, and we're coming to you from that tiny mountain cabin you dream about, but can never quite reach. Paul, my friend, happy birthday. Thank you. I'm celebrating by buying some mummified aliens off a man from Mexico. <laughs> hey, that's, it looks legit to me. Jaime Masson yes. would not steer us wrong. No, he's never been wrong at all in the previous 32 failed exposés that he's been involved in. So why now? And of course, we're speaking about the most recent scam. It's not really, for some reason, no one's just coming out and saying that, aside from people who talk about everything that we talk about on these shows as scams. Paul, would you mind explaining to the good folks? Yes. So a gentleman named Jaime Masson is sometimes inexplicably put forward as Mexico's leading UFO researcher, which for anybody that's got an interest in UFO law and history over the last 30 years would leave them scratching their heads, thinking, hang on, he's he's been involved in numerous nonsensical cases, claims. This is not the first time he's brought forward some alleged corpses of aliens. I mean, the, the, from what I gather... These are pulped up human remains from a burial site that have been remodelled into an alien, which is why they have genetic material in them, because it, they are the remnants of children, from what I can gather. What is um, it with that guy and the bodies of children? It was children's bodies last time. Yeah, I think it was an Inca child that was being passed so, off as an alien. Something like that. I got to tell you, Paul, you got this many dead kids' bodies that you're parading around like some kind of carnival freak show, you should be on a list. Yeah. I mean, why anybody takes me seriously after the last bullshit alien corpse that we had with the farmer found hiding in his barn that then the men in black turned up and the barn caught fire and... Uh, no, 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 no. <laughs> the emphatic Paul Bestel no might be one of my favorite Paul catchphrases. Just that disappointed no, no. Is, is one of my favorite things. And if anyone deserves it, it it's Jaime Mosan. Yes, he's, he's over in the corner with uh, Dr. Stephen Greer. Oh, yeah. I mean, you think that we could prevail upon the aliens to at least abduct them as far as they launching them into the sun? Just well, <laughs> or, or leave them on the moon, you know? Use your advanced technology to set up a nice little biosphere somewhere where these guys can live with the rest of their lives, pain-free. I mean, both are the heads of specific UFO cults in regards to the fact that there are people that would follow them to the end of the universe because they believe them. I mean, Greer especially. I mean, here's a man that charges £4,000 to come watch him cry whilst he summons UFOs to I come and say hello. I can't believe he charges that much. You know? I mean, I, I'm just... I, I, well, I've lost count the amount of times I've seen him be in an interview where he bursts into tears. I, you know, and I'm a highly emotional person at the best of times, but I don't cry when I start talking about aliens, unless I'm talking about those two. <laughs> well, that's fair. That's fair. So, yeah, so don't, don't buy the miniature alien body story, folks, in case you were thinking about it. It is nonsense. As we always say on this show, there is enough wonder in the universe. We don't need to make shit up. I guess just no one told Jaime that. But, of course... Paul and I got to meet in person. Ooh. It was super cool. He was, uh, it was funny because I've been looking at Paul's I am, like, thank you. <laughs> he is, he's also he's very fun drunk. <laughs> we, we had a great time. I think they were not perhaps prepared for the fire we were bringing to the table, but that, that's another conversation entirely. But I, now folks, I, I've been seeing Paul on video now for three years. 
two and a half, I guess. But I see like his chest up. <laughs> when I saw him in person, the first thing I saw was the, the head and chest. I'm like, oh yeah, no, that's normal. But then it was on a body. And I thought, holy shit, there's more of them. And it was, yeah, we had a great, great ass time. Paramete was a ton of fun. Again, we'll talk about it more throughout the course of the show. Um, <laughs> but if you check our YouTube channel, you'll see some video of us exploring the abandoned, I don't know what you'd call it, but the, the tower of Brown's Overhaul Hotel, which they made available to really just to us, I think, that first night. Yes. Because <laughs> they thought there's a room full of drunk people. Let's give them access to a deeply deeply unsafe part of this hotel <laughs> so yes you can, again you can find that on our youtube channel a little bit of break and enter by accident a <laughs> lot of profanity yeah no it was a, it was a great time it was lots and lots of fun met loads of lovely people saw some brilliant presentations made some good friends and uh, everybody sent me friend requests so we can't upset anybody that much <laughs> i only got two of them so i think maybe maybe it wasn't you maybe you did you came out okay <laughs> And on this episode, folks, I'm really, really excited for this one because this is a, a little bit of an unusual show. We're going to be telling stories about what seem to be earth spirits. In some cases, there's lights. In some cases, conscious entities. It's a really unusual mix. And it's happening because I got an email from someone. It's actually, Paul, it's been a weirdly active time for interested Revelstoke, which is bizarre. Not, not a lot of stuff, but you know, mm. normally this is not a topic people want to talk about. But uh, I had an email from a woman who just picked up Strange. Of course, my book, A Strange Little Place, available everywhere. Find books you sold. And she had some stories. And then, of course, a day or two after that happened, I was contacted, as I told you, by someone, uh, a member of our community who wanted to talk about Revelstoke. And if that goes any further, I'll, I'll mention that on the show. But I read the email and, and I thought it was really interesting. And my response to her is kind of what triggered my thought for the show. So I'm, I'm going to read it to you here, Paul. This listener says, I just picked up a copy of your second edition of Strange Little Place. As I began reading, I thought I should send you a quick note to share a strange paranormal experience from Revelstoke. When my daughter was around three, we lived briefly in the small cabins beside Downey Mill. She started waking up with night terrors, screaming that she was seeing skeletons. She would be ice cold and sweating when I touched her. It was really scary. I had my share of experiences with the deceased, but never anything that was frightening. Recently, I was in a class with my intuitive mentor and asked her about this experience when my daughter was younger. She said there was a dark portal in the bedroom where my daughter slept that these creepy spirits were connecting to her through. The cabin definitely gave off strange vibes. We didn't stay there long. I always felt creeped out when I wondered what kind of events took place there over the years in the past. I was wondering if you'd heard any stories about those cabins in your research. And now, I hadn't heard any stories specifically about those cabins, but what's interesting is that whole area has a very unique vibe to it, so I thought it was interesting I hadn't heard anything from that whole region. That seemed almost a notable absence. Mm. And I do think because that's close to the river, that's close to a, a green belt area with a lot, of, a lot of wildlife, I think what is happening there, as, and I told this to this person, I, I think it has more to do with the land than it does with what's happened on it. Mm. And it got me thinking about stories of the land. And so I, I went and did some digging and, and some of these stories actually were located by Luke as well. So a huge thanks to Luke. And yeah, so we've got, we've got a, a selection of strange nature stories lined up. But before we do that, we've got to thank our patrons. This one's for the patrons. Patrons, you're the Joe Pesci to our Riggs and Murtaugh, which is to say we're too old for this shit, but you keep bringing new life to this franchise. <laughs> and of course, we'd like to thank all our patrons, but we would especially like to thank our latest patrons. They are... Interactive Cheese. Lisa Thomas Tench, Miss Miller, and Alicia Dina Marie. Guys, thank you so, so much 
for your generous support. We cannot possibly tell you how much we appreciate it. And while we'll tell you at the end of the show about all the cool stuff we get, we will say for a dollar a month, you get ad-free episodes, and who doesn't want that? Ads suck. And genuinely, we just want to say we cannot tell you how much we appreciate our Apple Podcast subscribers and our patrons, because without you guys, there is no show. And so again, head to patreon.com slash ghoststoryguys. That's patreon.com slash ghoststoryguys. Or sign up to GSG Premium via Apple Podcasts. And again, that's patreon.com slash ghoststoryguys or GSG Premium on Apple Podcasts. And if you do sign up via Apple Podcasts and you want to shout out on the show, we would love to do that. Forward your confirmation to ghoststoryguys at gmail.com and we will thank you on the next episode. One last thing before we start the stories. Shout out to our composer, Jerry Smith. Jerry is a musician and film journalist from Central California. You can find his projects Street Witch and Rainy Days for Ghosts everywhere. You get your music, and those are streaming courtesy of Night Harvest Recordings, the Ghost Story Guys house label. All right, now we're going to take a quick break, and we will be back with stories of nature spirits. Glow. I'm not sure how other countries perceive elementals to be, but here in the Philippines they are called Encantos, Anitos, and so on. These Encantos and Anitos used to be worshipped by the ancient Filipinos until Spain decided to force Christianity upon us a few hundred years ago, and only then were they thought of as evil entities. Personally, I think elementals are a part of nature too, but were made differently. My first story happened when me and my family were on a three-day vacation in Baguio City. I was around 16 or 17 at the time. Baguio City is famous for its many hauntings. I honestly don't think what I saw was a ghost. Somehow it had a different feel to it. The place we stayed in was a vacation home owned by my mum's boss, and she was nice enough to let us use the place for free. The house was situated halfway up the mountain, so it took a little while to drive all the way up, and it was fairly isolated. On the first night we were all tired as hell because of the eight-hour drive to get there, as well as having spent the rest of the day shopping for trinkets to bring home to our friends, so my family decided to crash out. Since I have acid reflux and we had just eaten, I decided to kick back and enjoy the silence by reading. While I was reading, I noticed something flicker, like a quick flash of light in my peripheral vision. I looked up from the book to the window where I thought I'd seen the light, but nothing was there. So I went on reading and it happened again. But this time when I looked up, I was in for a surprise. Outside, there was a bluish-white ball of light, not very bright, but luminescent. If I had to guess, I'd say it was as big as a volleyball, maybe slightly smaller. And if I was to estimate my distance from it, I'd say around ten feet. Far enough to see it clearly. I was scared at first, but the side of me who's easily attracted to shiny things and sometimes too curious for my own good won out, and I continued to watch in awe. It looked almost magical. It bobbed up and down very slightly as it glided, and left some sort of translucent, almost transparent tail like a comet as it moved. Then it passed behind a tree. Again, to my surprise, it emerged on the other side of the tree, but no longer as one white ball, 
for as hundreds of tiny swirling balls of light. It was awesome. I admit I still felt a little scared, but it was too pretty to ignore. I had this feeling that whatever it was, it was playing with me. Then, as it passed behind another tree, when it emerged, it was back to being one big ball again. By the third time it emerged, I had to stand up and walk towards the window to continue watching it. It kept doing the same thing, compressing into a ball, then scattering, then compressing every time it passed behind a tree, till it got so far up the mountain that I couldn't see it anymore. I don't know, but to me it was awesome. I've never seen something so unnaturally pretty in my life. I gotta tell you, Paul, I don't often find myself thinking, boy, I wish I could have that experience just when we read stories on the show, because eh, most of them are terrifying. But that actually seems like a really nice thing to see. Mm, sounds very, uh, very pretty and, and as, a, as they say, magical. Yeah. Yeah. It reminds me, and I've, I've told this story a million times on here, but there was a, a guy I spoke to who saw something like that outside radium. Well, not like that, but he saw a, a, an enormous light in the sky that casts no shadows. Mm. But he said it just, he had this incredible calmness watching it pass by. And uh, again, yeah, I wouldn't turn down some free calm. Yeah, it's. It, yeah, I mean, the Philippines is a very strange place because obviously, in in Cantos is the the English translation of the Spanish word encanto, which means charm or spell, which obviously is then derived even further from I, I believe it's Tagalog, um, that particular area that they speak in the Philippines, which my sister in law speaks because obviously she's from okay. the Philippines. So it's strange how. The definition, the Christian definition that the Spanish imposed was to tell them all their forest friends and, and magical beings that the Philippines have in their folklore and their culture and their history were all evil entities. And yet they've ended up of using the, the Spanish word for charm or a spell to describe it, which kind of contradicts itself. It's really kind of like having a, a shitty girlfriend who comes in and tells you, man, all your friends, they're no good. We're not talking to them anymore. And then you've got to start hanging out with her friends and going for brunch. And Jesus, it, sorry, I, I got distracted. But <laughs> there's, yeah, bad memories. But that's kind of what it sounds like. Every time you read about Christianity coming in and tossing everything to the side, like, well, no, those are bad. You can't have those anymore. Here's new things. We're going to drink the blood of this guy every week. He loves it. You, you, you're really, you're going to dig this. I think, you know, we obviously a long time ago did an episode called A Star in a Dark Night, The Haunting of the Philippines. Mm -hmm. And I think that's probably one of my favorite episodes that I don't think gets a lot of attention. Mm. Uh, it might even be the kind of thing where we have to kind of redo it, just like kind of you and me reading those scripts, because they were two lengthy listener emails mm. is what they were. And again, I, one of them from Bob Vasquez, who's a longtime friend of the show, Bob yeah. is uh, Bob's a hell of a guy. And um, he'd say he's been with us for as long as there's been a, a ghost story guys to be with. Just the most interesting lore and the most interesting experiences, completely unlike I've heard any, anywhere else. And, and I know Bob, when he talked about that house that his family lived in, in the Philippines, it was genuinely unnerving. Again, not everything in the paranormal has to be scary. This was actually quite a nice story, but the one story Bob told was shit scary. They, they had buddy system for going to the bathroom because they had some kind of real nasty mimic thing that liked to hang around. And again, things that really shit me up, mimics are at the top. Uh, yeah, Anna Maria Manalo, the author, is also a really good resource for Doris because she grew up in the Philippines before she moved to the States. Right. And her first book, Portal, has a lot of stories of Philippine encounters with with strange creatures of a variety of descriptions so if anybody wants a really good starting point you could always check her work out and she's a lovely woman as well she's very uh, a very nice lady 
do you remember what episode of Eminem she was on? Uh, she's been on three times now, I think. Uh, oh, right. Yeah, of course. We did we did Portal, one of the first, God knows, I don't know, it's probably in the first 20-odd episodes, somewhere around there. She's been on twice since. Every time she's had a book out, she's done it. Um, the Way Through the Woods, which was a story about a, uh, a German girl who has a, a series of extraordinary paranormal encounters whilst escaping the, the occupation of the Nazis at the beginning of the Second World War. Oh, wow. And then she did a collection of haunted antiques uh, in another book, which involves some very strange stories indeed. Um, okay. But she's one of the scariest stories I've ever read was in Portal, which was about a couple who were on holiday in France in a very remote, I'm not sure, kind of like a cabin somewhere in the south of France. And they thought it was fabulous, loved it, the remoteness of it, the fact that they had to drive into the local village to get their cheese and their bread and their wine, and they were just enjoying their lovely evenings. And then they realised that there was a lot of deer outside. So they were just, ooh, these are really nice. And it was lovely until they all started to stand up on two legs. Jesus. And just started moving around the cabin as if they were just walking. No, thank you. Mm, yeah, some really good stories in her work. I recommend it highly if you've, if you've never read any of her books. Yeah, I'm going to have to pick that up. That's, so how did that one end? I, I assume they just left. They just let them eat the children and made their escape. Oh, that's fair. <laughs> it's cheaper it's cheaper than than paying for childcare. I got to say that shit's expensive, man. Deer got to eat too. Yeah, I'm but, kidding, by the way, yeah. anyone listening, don't yeah. don't cancel me on Twitter because yeah. I said that. Yeah. I've um, done lots of other shit you can cancel me for. <laughs> yeah, they just kind of dealt with it and then were glad to uh, finish their break and return home. So they've stayed in the cabin? Mm. Fight them that off with a baguette. A... <laughs> <laughs> okay. I mean, it's going to hurt. The, yeah, the deer the deer have a pain threshold. Yeah. But that is a level of, of... of cheese in France. You could kill a man with a camembert there. I the size of their balls is impressive considering they just stuck around. Holy Christ. <laughs> I see some deer walking around on hind legs. I am out of there. Faster than you can say whatever gone in French is. Mm. Well, usual, I would imagine some people here in, in, in England would probably think, ah, oh, I might try and wrestle that. Well, okay. Based on what I saw when I was in England, yep, those guys are absolutely there. I'm sure it's not all they would try and do with it. <laughs> Yikes. Manhunt. The reason I'm telling this story is to try and gain some kind of insight. I am a 25-year-old man and still puzzle over what was seen this particular summer night. At the time, I was about 16. My friends and I often played Manhunt after dark. It was a game like hide-and-seek, except usually there were more people hunting than hiding. I think that's also the same with hide-and-seek, but, but what do I know? Most of the time, we played in my friend's backyard. I'll call him Billy, for the sake of privacy. We had been best friends since I moved to that little town. There were many nights I recall where we had eight or ten kids playing manhunt with us. On this night, however, it was only my sister, Billy, and me. We decided we'd still make the best of it and have fun. As we were walking towards the apple tree we used for home base in Billy's backyard, I noticed how dark it seemed. It was as if with every step I took, the dark around us got thicker. I started to feel creeped out even though we had played back there after dark so many times without any issues. As we neared the apple tree, I decided I didn't want to play anymore, but neither did I want to look like a chicken. I had finally worked up the nerve to tell them I was getting creeped out when, surprisingly, both Billy and my sister told me they felt very much the same way. We were about halfway back to Billy's house, maybe 50 yards total, and I was walking to the right of my sister. Billy was on her left. For some reason, 
I decided to look back over my shoulder to the place we normally played and noticed Billy doing the same. About thirty yards beyond the apple tree was a grouping of rather large trees, and moving among them was a figure. It looked like the silhouette of a man, but made of light. There were no features on his face, and the bright light that made up his body did not shine on the ground or the trees. It was contained within himself. He quickly moved about fifteen feet or so before disappearing. It terrified me. I quickly turned to Billy and said, Did you see that? He replied, That white thing? I said, Yeah. Run. We all took off running for the front of Billy's house and the seeming safety of the street lamps. As we caught our breath, my sister asked us what we'd seen. When we described it to her, she thought we made it up to scare her. I didn't know how to convince her of the gravity of what we'd seen. We never saw it again, but then we never played Manhunt back there again either. And, Paul, I know Manhunt is a game people play. I know there used to be a group here in Victoria that played it in Beacon Hill Park, but I cannot hear Manhunt without thinking of that really greasy, grim video game from the late 90s. Do you remember that? Uh, no. Really? Okay, so maybe you guys have more strict laws about violence. So maybe your government actually said, we don't need this here. We're, we're, we're pretty good at stabbing at each other already. We don't, we don't need help. I remember a, a very controversial video game that came out in the early noughties over here, which was where you basically played a serial killer and you had to murder people. Yep, that might be it. The plot of Manhunt, as I recall, was you were a criminal on sort of like a Running Man-esque style game show. And the idea was that you had to, if you managed to avoid the goons looking for you, you could get to freedom. But you were actually a bad person. You were not a good person. It's not like the Running Man where, you know, Kimball was actually falsely accused. You were a, a murderer. You know, I don't know who was sitting around thinking, boy, society here in the 90s is really quite peaceful. I feel like we need to, to give people an opportunity to simulate stabbing someone in the lungs with a machete, but they did. And I will never forget two things from that game. And, and we're going we're gonna to be violent folks, so if that's a bad thing for you, maybe skip 15 seconds ahead. Eh, maybe 30 seconds. 45 if I keep talking. In three, two... One. Whoever did the sound design really went for the gold because when you stab the guy with a machete, you hear the sucking chest wound. Right? Yeah, I know. It's, <laughs> it's like baby's first sociopathy. I don't know who thought this was a good idea. And the other kill that was particularly disturbing was you sneaked up behind the guy with a bag. It was, I think it was actually your first weapon. That's, that's, that, that's what I always remember. The first thing you had to do was suffocate somebody with a bag. Yeah. <laughs> Again, I don't know who thought Serial Killer Simulator was the vibe for the 90s. I mean, I guess it, technically it was, but Jesus, that stuck with me. Yes. Well, whenever I hear stories of glowing figures, it always reminds me of one of my favorite Sherlock Holmes films. Which one's that? Which is uh, Sherlock Holmes and the Scarlet Claw, which is actually set in Canada. Oh, uh, right. I remember we talked about this one. They shot it in the UK, but it's set in, was it Montreal? Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah, uh, obviously everybody's wearing stripy tops and onions around the neck. <laughs> yeah. As was the style at the time. Yeah, 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 yeah. But that, obviously, one of the, the baddie in that, one of the characters, obviously, is a master of disguise, but, but Holmes sees through it. One of the get-ups he wears, he wears a glowing suit to give the impression of some kind of glowing marsh creature that's terrorising oh. the area, that's murdering everybody, when really it's basically a, uh, a psychotic, jealous actor chasing down the woman that jilted him and killing everybody that stood in his way. Wow. I mean, you got to respect the hustle, having a full-on light-up jacket. Absolutely. Well, he, he, I think he paints himself in phosphorus or something. Paints himself in cesium. Nothing yeah. could go um, wrong here. 
<laughs> My bones hurt. <laughs> well, it was the forties. <laughs> yeah. And it's and it's also odd as well that it's it's probably the best of the non Conan Doyle films because the Conan Doyle didn't write anything like the Scarlet Claw. Oh, it's, it's essentially an adaptation of the Hound of the Baskervilles, but using a person, right? Rather than a, than a hellhound, because in in certain versions of the Hound of the Baskervilles, the dogs painted in phosphorus as well. Oh, I didn't know that. I like. I mean, it's got to be a daunting thing to kind of try and play in the Arthur Conan Doyle sandbox, given what a talent he was. To then say, oh, you know, we're going to do something along those lines, but not quite the same. And I was just reading reviews of the new Poirot movie, mm. Haunting in Venice. And you and I were talking about that a couple of weeks ago, how Death on the Nile was not great. And this is apparently based on Halloween Party. Yes. But only loosely. Apparently it's more of a, a inspired by than an actual adaptation. And again, I thought that's a ballsy thing to do. But at the same way, I think that's probably the right way to go. Because these mm. texts have been around so long, it's kind of maybe hard to directly adapt them. But yeah. to sort of take the spirit of it and develop it further, I, I think is a really cool idea. Yeah, well, and, and to be fair, when, you, when you're dealing with Christie adaptations, especially when it comes to Poirot, a lot of people, they'll do, obviously, Murder on the Orient Express. Death on the Nile is, is usually, I mean, it's been done four times now. And then after that, people, you know, they'll do the Mirror Cracked. Okay, um, I don't um, What's the other one they do? And they go on an island. Oh, blimey. Please be the island of Dr. Moreau. Please be the island of Dr. No, Moreau. it's not. Hang on. Pause for a moment. I've forgotten what it's called. Evil Under the Sun. Oh, okay. That's a very cool title. Again, I, I'm realizing how few Agatha Christie novels I'm familiar with. Yeah. So Evil Under the Sun is, is one of those where the, uh, the baddies think they've got away with it. But uh, Poirot's had their number all along and he's just waited for them to prove that he's right. And also, uh, the, the film adaptation is one of those wonderful... that you see occasionally that you've got this really plain, dull woman character in it, and then at the end she's this ravishing beauty. Of course. And, of course, was played by the um, cult actress and, sadly, recently passed away, Jane Birkin. I do love that trope, the she's all that effect. I mean, obviously, <laughs> predates that, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, I think Evil Under the Sun is 80. Two? Oh, okay. So more recent than I thought. Yeah, it's the usual. Um, it's, very, it's quite similar to Death on the Nile, that there's a kind of love triangle fraud going on. But yeah, it's uh, it's a it's a good story. So I, it, I think it's quite a brave move that they've they've gone for one that a lot of people didn't really like as a Christie book. It's probably one that got a lot of negative reviews at the time. It's not highly thought of in the in the Christie canon. Oh, okay. Which is why most people have never probably heard of it. I certainly hadn't. I mean, in fairness, I hadn't heard the other ones you mentioned either, but I, <laughs> so maybe I'm perhaps not the best, uh, best source for this, but it looks like a real departure <laughs> from the other two, especially Death on the Nile, which just was just the most antiseptic nonsense. Yes. I saw a review on a very poor website, I have to say, that constantly seems to annoy me. Um, <laughs> I love that you keep going back there, though. Who said, oh, well, this film doesn't have the major stars that the last one had. And I thought, do you not go to the cinema very often if you think the cast of this film isn't very star-studded. Yeah, Michelle Yeoh, Tina Fey. They said, once you get past Tina Fey and Michelle Yeoh, it's a lot of B and C-list actors. And I thought, fuck off. <laughs> they're called really good actors. Yeah, they're called character actors, man. <laughs> and, and we saw how a star-studded cast worked out for Death on the Nile. Boy, that was great. I'm sure glad they spent all that money to get Army Hammer in there. That and the fact that they completely butchered the story. Well, they butchered a lot of things in that movie. 
I really like the original uh, version of it, the the uh, Peter Ustinov, David Niven one. Sure, yeah. And to completely take Niven's character out of the film was just stupid because he's a key, <laughs> he's a key part of it. It's also one of my favourite David Niven anecdotes that he told that um, him and Ustinov were on about because that that is a star-studded cast. Oh yeah. And they were filming. They were going to be filming with Bette Davis the day after. And so Ustinov and Niven were up all night shitting themselves because they were working with Bette Davis. And, you know, her reputation preceded her, I think. Well, she didn't suffer fools gladly. I think she, she's one of those people. She didn't, she's not a bad person. She just had standards. And if you didn't match them, she wasn't afraid to tell you. So they basically ended up spe- spending all night shitting themselves and drank about three bottles of wine uh, between them, trying to get their lines together. And, uh, and when they turned up to do it... Davis went, I'm surprised you two can see after all you were drinking and shouting last night, you rascals. <laughs> and that just pff, chilled them all completely out and they did it pff, one take. So they, they were basically you and me at the first night of Paramede. <laughs> the thought of David Niven being nervous acting with anybody, especially at that point in his career, yeah. he was one of, sadly before he got his um, terminal diagnosis, was one of those things. It's kind of nice, right? It's humanizing. You go, okay, it's mm. normal. This is just, everyone has this issue, no matter who they are. There's a story uh, or a quote that I used to hear on this one podcast. They talked about Steven Spielberg. And he said, he said, before every movie he does, even now, he gets nauseous. You know, before that first day of driving a set, he kind of has that, oh, Jesus, I can't do this. They're going to realize <laughs> I'm a schmuck. And of course he gets there and he's, he is who he is. But yeah, I, I think uh, we, we tend, people tend to forget, right? They forget that it, we're all kind of in the same shit. I, I, fuck, I do it before every recording. Every mm. recording, I think, well, this one's going to be shit. I'm, <laughs> I'm bad at this. I'm, everyone's going to realize I'm bad at this. And uh, the audience is, is going to go away and I'm going to end up standing there wearing one of those barrels with suspenders. And mm. uh, yeah, <laughs> the, the artist's temperament, I think. <laughs> What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Fairy lights. Back then, I was somewhat of a middle child. The twins, 18 years my senior, were married, and my oldest brother was off to war. That left my two older brothers, two younger siblings, and myself with our parents. Naturally, being four and five years younger than the boys, and a girl to boot, my brothers would often ditch me unless I could be of some use to them. My remaining sister was two years younger and baby brother was five years my junior. Mum was often too busy with them, or sorting out the older ones to pay me much mind. I was about six when I saw the lights the first time. We had just moved yet again. This house had a very large yard, with a field running next to it. It was dusk, and we older kids were almost dizzy with the freedom of being outside without a grown-up. We had been shown the yard's perimeter, and instructed to stay in it, but that didn't stop my brothers from giving me the dodge, so I was alone with our dog Jimbo, playing in the light that flowed from the house's windows. When I saw the first light, I remember thinking, lightning bug. But then I noticed it didn't blink the way they do. It was a steady glow, very soft and a bit fuzzy at the edges. I watched it as it floated about, 
and was soon joined by another, and another. I remember thinking how pretty they were, as dozens of these miniature electric dandelion scenes soon appeared, some coming quite close to me, before changing direction and rejoining the others. I glanced at Jimbo, who had seated himself by my side. He gave no indication of anything be amiss, but seemed to be watching them too. Being six, I decided that those lights could only be the lights of fairies off to some wondrous party. I watched them fade out of sight. The lights were not a nightly thing, but then neither was being outdoors at dusk. I tried telling my family about them, but was only laughed at. I was told I was mistaken, and they were just lightning bugs. After that, I kept my sightings to myself. Flash forward a few years, we'd moved several times more, and the fairy lights seemed to be a thing of the past. It was winter, and I was finally coming home from a short hospital stay. I was almost twelve, and sat in the back seat of my parents' car, being quiet and just looking out of the window. My throat was still raw, which made speech difficult, which was just as well. My father had already made it quite clear that he'd rather be doing anything else but bring me home, while my mum was quietly euphoric about it, reaching backwards to pat my hand now and then, or asking me if I was hungry. It wouldn't have surprised me if she'd kept some jello in her purse just in case I said yes. It was almost dark as we approached the big bridge going home. I gazed out, down onto the water, and saw tiny fairy lights dancing here and there. Mentally, I sorted them out from the reflected lights. I heard my dad ask what the hell I was looking at, and without thinking I croaked, the fairy lights. I heard him tell my mum that with an imagination like mine, I'd never be lonely. Just then, one came quite close up to my window, and stayed even with us as we crossed the bridge's span. At the end it turned going through the girder. I didn't bother to even mention it, but it's always been enough for me to know that no matter where I was, there was always the possibility of the fairy lights. What's wrong with that, Dad? I was going to say, what an absolute dong. <laughs> Dick Dad. He really is. I just, what, what possesses people to do this? And I, I know it's not just dudes. I know everyone kind of has, some people have this thing where they just, they have to piss on any sense of wonder in the world, but just, just keep it to yourself. I just don't, I don't understand that, that need to be snide about everything. Like, are you at an atheist convention? Calm the fuck down, dad. Oh, or did you just come out of the hospital? Would you like to experience a moment of wonder? Oh, not on my watch. <laughs> Pardon me as I urinate on the flame of your hope. Get bent. Jesus. No, they'll be reading books next. Oh, asking questions. Right, Giving them you. the vote. <laughs> Poppycock. What do they expect next? Kindness? Get Paid this. work. <laughs> well, we're not doing that. Apparently no one's doing that anymore based on the, uh, the job listings I've been getting. <laughs> what a lovely story. It really is. It really is. Again, that's kind of what I, what I liked about most of these stories is they're not, eh, they're, they're most, some of them are quite nice. It's just, again, they, they, they hint at this element to the world that we're not necessarily always party to, but is there. And I, I, I find that reassuring. Mm. It's also an interesting aspect to this, to, to the both of the key parts of the story that she says, is that as she does the introduction, it, you can get the sense of that being a little bit lonely as sure. she describes the family setup and there's, there's just her and the dog. 
So it's almost as if they've come to make her feel part of something or that she's not alone. She has got something out there. And then as she's slightly older and she's vulnerable, she's been ill, she's feeling, ugh, dad's a dick. And they've just come, hello, we're here again. Yeah, it's just a pleasant story. It's a pleasant experience. Except, of course, for the dipshit who's apparently the head of your family and, and you're, you know, you're jailer for the first 18 years of your life. <laughs> hmm. I, I will say that's something I was lucky about. You know, I didn't have anyone who did that to me. Not that I had a lot of flights of fancy. You know, I, I was not a very outgoing kid or very talkative kid past a certain point. Like once a depression set in, that it really just kind of shut me up. And it's obviously that has not stayed true. But for a long time, I, I just kind of kept to myself. But I was lucky enough that I didn't have people crapping on me like that. You know, I didn't mm. have, I, again, I was not a very imaginative kid. I didn't really believe in anything spooky. But even so, I didn't really have people crapping on me. In fact, it, it, what's kind of funny is the only time my family wasn't supportive is when I got political <laughs> in my early 20s. And obviously, uh, you know, I'm left-leaning and my grandfather was not happy about this. <laughs> yeah, I, I came from a very politically disruptive family, so we've always been agitators. Oh, that's great. I, yeah, I'm from a very uh, hands-off family for, as far as that stuff goes. I, I'm, I, my family listens to the show. I've become aware of this, so I, I'm not going to say some things I might have ordinarily said. But uh, yeah, they were not, disruptive is not, not the word I'd use. Yes. I would sometimes be told off for um, making my point and, and was considered a, a, a too forceful manner, but it was simply based on knowledge and intelligence. What can you do? I'm just imagining tiny baby Paul throwing a petrol bomb. <laughs> Hey, I went to the poll tax rights, mate. Yeah, <laughs> yeah? Okay, never there paid we go. it. Never paid it. <laughs> Take that, Thatcher. <laughs> See, you guys had someone to rail against. We didn't really have a figure that was as sort of uniting in opposition as as Thatcher was. You know, we had Pierre Trudeau, and, and I mean, you know, a lot of people didn't like him. Although th there is a great story uh, where, of course, you know, he flipped off the famously, you know, flipped off some people from his train. At one point, to Pierre Trudeau, and, and so he, another time he came through, and I, now this may not be true, but it's a great story, so who cares? But he was passing through sort of Salmon Arm, Revelstoke, somewhere along there, and Pierre Trudeau, of course, the father of, for people who don't know, the father of our current Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, and they mooned him. A bunch of the local guys lined up along the track and yanked down their trousers and, and showed Mr. Trudeau their ass. Let me tell you, that was a daze of political dissidents. That was, I, that I can get behind. The assholes driving through my neighborhood blasting their truck horns, not so much. <laughs> E.T. The first of these experiences happened to my mom in approximately 1962 when she was around eight or nine. This had a profound emotional impact on her, resulting in a keen interest in extraterrestrials and interdimensional beings. Mum and her family were staying at a holiday house out in the country for a few days. She doesn't recall who owned the house, but... The owners weren't present. It was a warm day. Mum recalls being inside when what she describes as a fireball appeared in the house. She doesn't remember seeing it enter, only that it was just suddenly there. The fireball was about the size of a basketball and looked to be made of orange flame. It emitted a loud, deep, motorized sound akin to a lawnmower or Harley Davidson. Whatever the sound was, she's never heard it since. The fireball flew around the house with great agility into different rooms, seeming to possess a conscious awareness of surroundings and how to skillfully avoid collision. Despite being a fireball, Mum couldn't feel any heat from it, but not for lack of trying. For Mum, ever so thrilled by their visitor, chased it around the house. Yep, that's my Mum. 
After a short stay, it flew out the open front door past my grandfather, who yelled, Jesus bloody Christ! With Mum hot on its tail, it zoomed up into the atmosphere and disappeared into eternity. After the fireball left, Mum became despondent, heartbroken even. Sad and disappointed, she waited outside, hoping for its return. Alas, it was never seen again. To this day, Mum still gets emotional to remember it leaving. When I was a teenager, I asked my grandmother about this. She was reluctant to talk about it. Something about, Now what's your mother doing telling you about that? came her reply. After some pleading and prodding, she conceded something loud and bright flew around with Mum chasing it. My grandmother told the story from the perspective of a concerned parent, focused on getting Mum to stay still. As her attention was on protecting Mum, she didn't exactly take detailed notes. She recalled it being loud, fast, and bright, but nothing more specific than that. My aunt apparently hid behind furniture, and my uncles were a bit too young to know what was happening. Then, around Christmas 2010, I was staying at Mum's. I'd just gone to bed and couldn't have been in bed more than a minute when the window lit up for a couple seconds. I opened my eyes to the room being quite bright. Then, darkness again. I sat up and listened, thinking some pervo was outside taking pictures. The curtains were closed, and I figured it was pretty dumb to use a flash as all you'd get would be reflection. The room lit up again. It was definitely coming from the window. Leaving the lights off, I got out of bed and ran to turn the backlight on. I peered out the back window, but there was nothing there. I ran to Mum's room and woke her up, telling her some creep was outside taking pictures and I was going to call the police. She said, don't, and proceeded to tell me that this had been happening for more than ten years. So it goes, she could be anywhere, day or night, and something will light up for a couple of seconds. It could be anything, an entire house, an entire tree, a person. Apparently I was lit up once, I had no idea. She even saw a traffic light being lit up once while waiting at the lights. When it happens, it makes her smile, and she's always wondered if some kind of entity was responsible. Whatever this is, it's followed her around and seems to go with her out in public, too. I've encountered this light phenomenon on one other occasion, again at Mum's, this time in about 2012. I was in her lounge room. The lamp was on, but it was pretty dim light. The room lit up for a couple seconds. The light is white. Despite this, it mutes all colors. Things don't appear black and white, but colors are noticeably faded. Also, this light casts no shadows. There's no direction to it at all, even when I first saw it through the window. I knew it was coming from the window because the curtains were glowing brighter, but the light had an oddness I couldn't place. That oddness became clear on my second encounter with it. Altered colors, evenly distributed light with no shadows... Another thing I noticed was a subtle click sound when the light appears, then another click when it disappears. Mum's not worried about any of this, and neither am I, but what the heck is going on here? Mum has felt for years that all the phenomena mentioned here is connected to ETs. However, I theorize the lights we've both encountered may be an elemental spirit of some kind, but an elemental who follows Mum out in public? I don't know why that would be. And... This one, again, uh, I mean, given our conversation about ETs earlier, I, I think is, is kind of interesting. But also, again, the, the idea that there's just this elemental thing that's just hanging around. And I, I mean, Christ knows why it's, you know, flashing things up. But it, it's, I've never really, that's not true. I've heard of things like this, but not quite in the same circumstance. Because I, 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 and I'm sure I've told you this story before. I think you've heard all my stories. But when I used to work in that old haunted office building, 
I would sometimes see flashes in the various offices. Have you heard of this phenomenon elsewhere? The entity case. Really? And Doris Bythers, that was light, they were light, streaks of light that would fly okay. about the room, like miniature electrical, like lightning strikes, but they were just oh, basically Jesus. arcs of light that would appear over her during the investigation. That's bizarre. I mean, other than that, I mean, obviously, it, it's more akin to, to elemental encountered rather than alien but at the end of the day i don't think anybody knows what the bloody hell's going on so what no, why try no, and that's fair. <laughs> could be anything i know where it isn't it's not ball lightning oh yeah yeah that funny enough that came up in the comments of a bunch of these stories people saying oh it's clearly ball lightning which as you and i have discussed many times when you say that you clearly have no idea what that is yeah well it's as we've said you know it's one of those excuses that's trotted out there's no real proof of it you know yeah. i think what have we got three second footage of it in a laboratory i didn't know we had that much and it's about the size of a nickel flies flies across the bottom of the screen oh really that's it hmm? that's it i mean there's ball lightning is the nine percent is anecdotal i mean somebody in my family saw some ball lightning come down the chimney and fly out the window brought the window pane interesting I, I my family had the same experience something came in one window and kind of flew along the floor and then went out the door yeah so I mean, could be could be worse. I mean, there was a famous Russian scientist who was trying to copy Benjamin Franklin's experiment about a couple of years after he did it. So he went out with his kite, and allegedly, ball lightning came down the kite string, smacked him in the head, killed him. Jesus Christ. Blew his shoes apart. Wow. <laughs> Forgot his name now, but yeah. So did he. <laughs> but yeah, the, the vast majority of, you know, it's like when they say, oh, that's it's not a UFO you've seen, it's ball lightning. Nobody's seen ball lightning. We've no proof it exists. Yeah. Now, there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, well, probably thousands of people that have seen strange balls of light. However, these seem to have some kind of intelligence, which would completely disregard that for me, because it's, it's almost as if these have a conscious ability of their surroundings and their emotional impact on the viewer. Oh, yeah, yeah. This very much seems like a, an aware thing. Like the storyteller says, you know, they navigated the house. It didn't careen into things. Mm. It seemed to very consciously avoid obstacles. Yeah, so... <sighs> I don't know. Hmm. Well, pivoting away from that, I wonder if it'd be, this just seems like a great time to talk about your experience with the Estes method <laughs> at uh, Paramete, because, you know, we, we can't do any more with fireballs, but uh, I would love to talk about that. Yeah. So I've always been very dismissive of it, I have to say, without actually trying it. Before we get into it, can you explain to the audience what the Estes method is? So the Estes method is that you will have one person who will be oblivious to their surroundings, so they'll be wearing a blindfold and a pair of earphones like these, cans, and which is connected to a spirit box, which is simply going... And through, through that method, the people you are with or a person will be talking to you and personal experience. I can tell you 100%, I couldn't hear a thing anybody was saying to me at all. I had no contact. I had no idea what anybody was saying. And I was simply told that any word that I could hear, I was to repeat. Julie did it first for a bit. I wrote all the things down that she was saying, which is quite interesting. I think Julie was finding it a bit much, shall we say. And so I thought, oh, I'll give it a go. Try this. See where it is. So I got it on, got my blindfold on, made sure I couldn't see anything. Because obviously we've got K2 meters and things around us as well. So there was a lot of lights flashing and stuff. And I got my cans on, pushed my hands on so I you know basically created a vacuum 
So I couldn't hear anything, and off off we went, and it blew my mind. Now, can you describe what you were getting relative to what they, you later found out they were asking? So the one thing that seemed to be constantly, like for the entire time I was doing it, was something going stop, 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 stop. And then I'd obviously get phrases like that came through as, um, in the back, stabbed in the back. There were names. I started laughing at one bit, <laughs> just did something. Go, ha, 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 ha. So I said, that's what I said. And obviously I, I had no idea what was happening. And I honestly thought I'd been at it 10 minutes and I'd been at it 45 minutes. And basically they had to stop because <laughs> I wouldn't stop. And then afterwards, we sat down and one of the people there had to leave the room because they had a diabetic crash. Their blood sugars just wouldn't recover. Yeah, and, and that continued for a while, as I recall, because I, I remember standing outside with you and her a little bit later in the night yeah. and she was still dealing with that. Yeah, Emma, she was, she was not well. Her blood sugar crashed while we were in the room and she did everything she normally did to bring it back up and it just wouldn't happen. As yeah. soon as she left the room, it came straight back up. And apparently there was a spirit in the room and they discovered that it was connected to this enormous mirror that was in there. Right. And so they were trying to get this thing to go into the light. And that's why I kept saying, stop, no, stop, no, no, stop it. Stop that. Stop it. Wherever this was, I was very annoyed that they wanted it to go. Oh, that's what it was. Okay. So I, I thought the stop it was more relative to them approaching the mirror. I didn't realize it was about moving this thing on. Well, it started, they were approaching the mirror. And right. it was angry about that. And then they were, were trying to make it move on. And it was like, no. <laughs> no. Okay. Nope. Not having that. Yeah, it blew my mind. Yeah, because I, I didn't book the seance that night. So I hung out in the bar. We had some listeners come by. It was uh, Johnny, Cassie, Vicky, and Richard came by to hang out. So I went and had some drinks with them in, in the hotel bar. And you and Julie went off to do this the seance. And I was surprised. You were gone about three hours total, I think. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I think if they had to stop me, I'd have carried on till two in the morning, I think. I, well, I'm not surprised. I just sort of imagine you in a shark cage, just like, nope, deeper, send me down further. I'll <laughs> yeah, give the ocean that. the bends. <laughs> and you came back after the first seance and you weren't that thrilled because I think you were saying that it just seemed like too many people in a room to try and accomplish yeah. what they were accomplishing. There was too many people there. There were, there were people who had clearly researched the building. Right. I mean, there was one thing they were kind of saying to us, you know, just relax and, and if you get any information come through to you. I mean, the thing was, before the seance began, our K2 meter was going off like crazy. Once the, stay, oh, okay. once, once the seance began, it stopped and didn't come back on at all. Hmm. But I ended up getting two names, John and James. So as I was leaving the sounds before we, we broke out and then we got invited to, to break off and do the separate investigation with the organisers, uh, which was very kind of them. Um, Absolutely. I just said, oh, I, I've just got these names, John and James. And then the lady Penny, who was the researcher, came to me afterwards and said that the gamekeeper that used to work on the grounds was called John James. Son of a bitch. Didn't get a message or anything. Nothing at all. No, didn't, you know, I just had that. Two names, as far as I was concerned, I thought it was two people. It was a gentleman called John James, who was the gamekeeper there. That's no madness. I'd not, I can, you know, 100% categorically tell you I didn't do any research or investigation or prep sure. myself at all. But there were some people there who clearly done a lot of investigation. I know there was a paranormal researcher I got on like a house on fire with, uh, Mark Wallbank. He was a smashing fella from New Zealand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. good dude. And uh, great taste in music. 
he was doing a Ouija board session and he just said it was ridiculous. He said it was obvious that it, the, this one particular person was just pushing it about. And he said it was it was laughable. It was just a waste of time. So, I mean, it is what it is. But um, as, as someone that's always questioned the validity of seeing these things on television, I can categorically say that if they do what I did, then there's a lot more to this than meets the eye. Yeah, I'm actually, again, normally investigation, eh, I'm not that that hung up on it, but uh, the Estes method is something I am actually keen to try myself. Mm. Yeah, I'm going to buy one. Oh, really? Mm. That's it now. I'm off. I'm off to the spirit world. I'm off. Because <laughs> we were going to buy a Ouija board. I think we're going to get one of these instead. That seems like the way to go. I mean, you've done a ton of Ouija boards. You've kind of got the lay of that particular land, but this seems like new territory. Yeah, it, re- it really did remind me of the excitement I felt in those younger days. I felt really excited afterwards and invigorated. And it, like I say, it, it blew my mind. I was actually planning to leave because we had been hanging out in the bar for however hour long and everyone was sort of breaking off and, and heading home because, you know, everyone was sort of, uh, with the exception of Richard, who actually was staying at the same hotel I was, everyone else was lived, you know, a, a distance away where they had to drive to get home. So everyone's kind of breaking off. And I was just about, I was sort of down the driveway when I got the message from you saying, where are you? And so I came back, and yeah, you were you were jazzed. We we stayed up for a while talking about that. Yeah, and then decided to go wandering around dark woods. <laughs> oh, yeah, we did too, didn't we? I think I remember saying at one point, "Don't we tell people not to do this?" <laughs> yeah, <laughs> ghostery guys, we're not real good at taking our own advice. <laughs> do as we say, not as we do. Yeah, that's the that should be the subtitle of the show. <laughs> it's always been my motto. <laughs> What was interesting is um, we, aside from that, we didn't have much in the way of paranormal experiences in there, but there was one I wanted to bring up and we may as well, fuck it, we'll do it here. But when you and I, that first night when we went walking around uh, and they led us into the tower, obviously, you know, it was, a, as you'll see in the ghost hunting clips, folks, it was a big old laugh. We'd again had a few, uh, a few beverages and, and we're walking around with some of the other early birds. And then we got, we went into that first room, which again, you'll see in the video, and it was totally, you know, it was fine. It was a room. Uh, and then we went upstairs, looked around, went downstairs, and we went back into the room on the way down. And it was really interesting. It hit you first. And then I felt it after. But you felt this, as I recall, it was a profound sadness all of a sudden, wasn't it? Mm, yeah, I felt it was like I'd been wrapped in a bubble of melancholy. It was like I was in a different room. And it must have been, I don't know, five, ten minutes. Oh, at most, at most, because we weren't from, upstairs very long. No. From going into it on the way up, it was fine. And coming on the way down, honestly, it was awful. It was, it yeah. was really sad. As as, by the time I got back out the room and to the bottom of the stairs, it had left me. Right. But I could still, you know, the, how it made me feel was, was quite a lot. I mean, obviously, one of the people there burst into tears. I was going to say, yeah, one of the uh, sensitives who'd, who'd come up there with us, she was, took a while to bring her back, as I recall. Yeah, that was a very odd Odd sensation, and I'm not sure if it's, as I said to you at the time, is it the direction you enter a, a room in that can cause it? Because as we went into it on the way up, it was fine. But when we went into it on the way down, that's when we all got hit by it. And it wasn't just me and you. There was, you know, there was half a dozen of people that emotional responses to going into that room on the way down, not on the way. Nobody got it on the way up. Everybody got it on the way down. Yeah. And, and to be clear, not everyone was drinking. You know, that that's sort of the obvious is like, oh, well, you know, after a while, the party starts to dip. But You know, not everyone was drinking, or at least not to the degree we were. The Trail My girlfriend and I live in a small town in New Jersey, right by the Delaware River. 
We have many trails around here in the woods, and the one we went to last night is in a small state park right by the river. We'd gone to this spot once before during winter, and all of the vegetation was gone this first time. The trail was quite clear, and had only a thin strip of wood separating the road from the river bank. However, this second time, it was different. Now that it was summer, there was thick brush everywhere in that spot. We parked the car around 6.30pm in a small space right out of the road where the trail starts. It was clearly visible, beckoning us in despite the thick brush. Thinking back, it was almost unnatural how beaten down the narrow slice of trail was in contrast to the thick brush surrounding it. We started on the trail and easily made it to our spot by the river in around six minutes. There was one area where the trail led us to a small ditch filled with plant life but both ends of the trail were clearly visible from this area. After passing through, we passed a big tree with thick roots coming out from the ground and made it to our spot by the river. When we got to our spot, we saw that the river was quite high, but we still found a spot to sit down. We sat for about an hour, talking about the tragic fire that had recently happened in Hawaii. At around 7.30, we figured it would be a good idea to head back, just before it got dark. When we passed the big tree right at the start of the trail and got down to the ditch, something felt off immediately. I couldn't tell you what, but I felt terrified of the vegetation. It was so thick and suffocating. Standing in this ditch, the two of us tried to come back on the same trail we came through, but when we went in that direction, we noticed that the brush had now completely swallowed it up. It wasn't even dark at this point. It was just gone. We looked everywhere in that ditch for our trail. We even tried brute forcing our way through in the direction of it, but we never found a trace of it. No narrow slice of clear ground. Everywhere was covered in green. We wandered for about half an hour, coming upon a second, smaller tree with its roots above ground. Here, we saw what looked like part of the trail we were on, but the entire path was completely blocked by stinging nettles of which we hadn't seen any of on our way in. This tree was a landmark we remembered from our first time coming here, and we even have a video of it from that time. We searched and searched, and like I said, this was not a very large trail. We should have stumbled upon it. We were scared of the coyote pack and the bear that call these woods home. My girlfriend was beginning to panic, and I was not much better. At this point it was completely dark, and we only had our phone flashlights. We ended up having to force our way through the brush to the road and it took far longer than it should have. It felt like we were running for hours. We weren't walking, we were running. And it took us almost an hour to get back to our car from about ten to nine. Again, it was only a six minute walk on the windy trail. But when we were running almost perfectly straight towards the road, it took us almost ten times that. We also ended up further down the road in the opposite direction of the trail which should have been impossible, because my girlfriend had her maps app up, tracking our distance to the road, and we were going straight towards it. When we finally got back to the car, we noticed that the trail was now totally blocked, no trace of the spot where we had entered, the plants completely undisturbed like we were never there. That's honestly one of the scariest parts of the whole experience. We were so relieved, but on the way back home, 
my girlfriend brought up something from the first time that I had forgotten about. She'd found a tattered rope on the ground, right off to the side of the trail under a tree. It was unmistakably and tragically a noose. It had been cut cleanly on the end that would have been tied to the tree. It was very dirty and had clearly been exposed to the elements for some time. Not wanting anyone walking the trail to have seen that, she kicked it into the river. Her heart was in the right place, but it was seemingly a foolish mistake in hindsight. Now, unlike my girlfriend, I'm not a very spiritual person. But when she said that, both of our bodies shuddered, and I felt, momentarily, that same anxiety and dread I'd felt in the woods. I knew how lonely whoever tied that noose had to be. I felt almost completely certain that they were behind the events of that night, and they wanted us to stay and keep them company, though I don't think they meant us harm. Tonight, we went back to the trail because my girlfriend wanted to perform a ritual for the spirit. She wanted to make right with it and bring it peace for the night. She set up a handful of witchy-type items and spoke a few words to the spirit. She brought flowers, placing them on the post marking the still fully blocked entrance, and lit a black candle, adorning the post with just a little bit of melted wax. She said a few words and explained how we meant no harm, and apologised for kicking the rope into the river. As she poured this wax, I saw something that I still doubt, but I feel like it's worth mentioning. Below the arching plants to the immediate left of the first post, I saw a amorphous blob of some kind. It didn't seem like a trick of the light as it was dark, and we only had a small lantern and the candle illuminating the area. It seemed to reach out to her, not in a violent or negative way, but in a longing and desperate manner. Still, I was terrified something would grab and take her deeper into the brush. She was incredibly calm though, and upon pouring the wax and stepping away, the presence disappeared. We sat down in front of the post and kept the candle lit. It was the calmest candle I've ever seen. The flame slowly drifted and flickering back and forth between my girlfriend and I, as if looking at us and checking us out. As we waited longer, the candle would grow calmer. Finally, as the stick of incense we were burning began to reach its end, candle flame began to drift slowly away from us and pointed towards the woods. Are you ready to return home? I asked. The candle flame began to flicker slightly, swinging side to side and then settling calmly centred, as if to say, OK, I'm ready. When the incense finished burning, we blew out the candle and got back in our car. We then tossed our last couple of flowers into the river at dock upstream, so they would make it to the trail. We both felt tired and relaxed after this whole experience, and my girlfriend says that we had made peace with that spirit. We want to go back some day, but only during the day, and only in fall and winter, when the brush has cleared, and we can't become trapped by it, but I'm hoping we can keep it company. Now, far be it for me to correct someone on their experience, Paul, because ultimately, we're just pissing in the wind here. We don't know for sure. But I don't think whatever happened had anything to do with kicking a rope. But I've never heard of, you know, the spirit can actually alter the physical world around you. I feel like you're dealing with something more substantial there. Mm, yeah. I think sometimes an explanation can be applied to a situation that has no relevance. And I think this is it. Yeah. I, I think this was a comforting story that allowed them to not just make sense of the experience, but to control it. 
I think that's what this was. Yeah, definitely. They're very lucky. It could have ended up like Willow Creek. So I'm just glad they got out. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, I, I, I do love how it's always, well, it could be Willow Creek, which really kind of works in any <laughs> circumstance. Well, your DNA was destroyed by nuclear waste at Chernobyl. Well, still not Willow Creek. No, no, they're still not throwing your smalls up a tree to tell you to leave. <laughs> oh, man. Something else that jumped out at me about this one is the, the, the black orb thing. Mm. That's cropped up a number of times lately on the show. Yeah. And, yeah. and I'd never heard of kind of black ooze prior to its first appearance on the Chicago episode. Did you? I've come across it, but mostly in occult literature rather than experience. Oh, interesting. What's the context there? It's usually some kind of demonic or evil force manifesting itself. Dennis Wheatley mentions it quite a lot in his writings. Oh, okay. Interesting. Like some kind of malevolent, powerful, um, evil blob that seems to be um, tantalizingly tempting, but dangerous at the same time. Oh, interesting. Hmm. It's sort of fascinating then that what we're seeing now is we're kind of seeing that but without the context, yeah. you know, because we don't have that in, in the popular consciousness anymore. I'm sad to say that, it, you know, it's the level of discourse we're, we're operating at, generally speaking, is not great. Yeah, you know, a lot of the folks who run a near circle, you know, they, they know what they're talking about. They've got a lot to offer, but we don't have a ton of guys like Keel out there anymore who have that sort of that background. Mm. Actually, one group who does seem to have their, their shit figured out is uh, Greg and Dana Newkirk. Yes. And I, I've rented their new movie, The Unbinding. I haven't had a chance to watch it yet. I'm saving you it for it? tomorrow. Oh, you are? I wanted to watch it with no interference from family, friends, or sport. Ah, fair. So I'm watching yeah. it tomorrow night. <laughs> okay, well, maybe we'll, we'll have to trade notes on the Talk Spooky recording. Yeah. Because I, I'm curious to know what you think. I know I was actually talking to Adam from Weekly Creep, of course, who does the, the editing for our YouTube now. Yeah. And him and Dulce actually went, got to go to a live event last night with Greg and Dana there. Yeah, and they knew him. They, they recognized him, didn't they? Yeah, they did, which is super it's class. Cool. Yeah, absolutely. it. I, res I got a lot of time for that. I've had very brief correspondence with them, but they've both been very gracious on the occasions that I've um, had communication with them. And I, I've got a lot of time for them, I have to say. Yeah, yeah. It's hard to retain your integrity when you reach that level, you know, like, but it seems like they've done it. And again, I, I got a lot of respect for that because it's easy to go the other way. We won't name names, but there are people out there who've kind of gone the other way. But then yeah. you got people like them. And, and I think Ryan Sprague is another great example. Yes. Someone who, who started kind of roughly around the same time as us, but has just rocketed up there and still kept his integrity. Yeah. That's until he goes ghost hunting in Nova Scotia and becomes possessed. I saw that. Yeah. I think that's the same show that Kim from Booze and Bourbon. Yes. Is on, which yes. is a, just a crazy way for it all to, to kind of come together. Yeah. Well, she's, she's going to be in the UK in the next couple of weeks as well, I think. Really? Yeah. Oh, shit. I hadn't seen that. I follow her on socials, but I, I yeah. must have missed it. She mentioned it in passing to somebody, and I can't remember who it was. Uh, Daryl Marston, who's over. Oh, okay. For the, because there's a festival of the unexplained currently going on over here. Right. In the UK. And Daryl's one of that. And he'd been to Chester, which is obviously a place I know very well because my auntie used to live there. Wandered Chester many a time. I haven't been, it's somewhere I'd like to go quite soon, actually. I haven't been there for a very long time. And it's a beautiful city full of mystery and history and it's got a bit of everything as Chester from the Druids and allegedly the seat of King Arthur, Roman. Is it a Chesterfield? <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> well, I think Chester, Chesterfield has that Chester doesn't is a, is a crooked spire because the devil didn't like where he was. That's the story. We've the reality is they used their own wood when they built the church but, and it's warped over the years. It is a remarkable thing. It's a remarkable thing. It's still up. So using the wrong building materials in construction is kind of a British tradition. Yes, especially in schools. Yes. 
There seems to be the uh, buzz term now. All, all children's school uniforms now include hard hats and high-vis vests. <laughs> it's, a, it's a very niche English joke, but our, our British listeners are understanding it and kind of weeping softly into their tax dollars. I'm shocked because I, I can't remember listening to a discussion on the radio two years ago talking about this very subject, about our collapsing hospitals, which had used the same material, and certain hospitals were basically being held together with elastic bands and blue tack. And then two years ago, like, oh, w- nobody was aware of it. Well, we were. Even I knew about it two years ago. Wh- why on earth am I going to be, have any interest in shit concrete? And yet I knew about it apparently before the government. Yeah, I, mean, I was going to say, in fairness, there's been so much turnover in number 10, it may be that there's no one left from two years ago in there. Yeah, well, <laughs> it takes them two years to find all the notes from the previous government because they change that often. <laughs> but, uh, ah, well, we've only got 15 months of them left. There we go. And then they'll be annoyed with the new leader. <laughs> Well, naturally, yeah. <laughs> Just briefly t- talking about Kim, uh, formerly of, of Booze and Bourbon. I knew Kim was going to go places when we first exchanged a message on Instagram. Because they were on episode 67, I think it was, yeah. The Bleak East. And it was a little while before that we kind of talked on Instagram. And I remember thinking to myself, okay, yeah, this person is going to do the thing. Because she was talking about how she had to prep episodes for when they were away or when they couldn't record. So there was no break in the release schedule. And I thought anyone who's at this level, who's thinking that far ahead, that person is going to make it happen. And she has absolutely done that. Yeah. Nice lady. She is. Both her and Jen were really cool on the show. I I haven't spoken to Jen in a very long time, but every now and again, I'll trade a message with Kim and say she's doing very well and it's, it's well-deserved. Yeah. Jen had incredible eyebrows. Indeed she did. I've got great eyebrows, but hers were even better than mine. Funny enough, Nick just had her eyebrows tinted because my sister's wedding's coming up. But obviously when it's first done, she had them plucked and shaped and tinted. And of course, when it's first done, they're they're quite stark, quite dramatic. And she was very self-conscious about it. So she kept making Groucho Marx eyes at at me, which I'm not even going to try and do here. But she would just, she'd see me looking at her and she'd go, stop looking. And I'd say, no, no, it's not not that. And then she'd do the eyebrows and I would just go to pieces. I would just, just collapse. And uh, now, I, now I can't help it. They look, they're totally gone back to normal, but I still look and she, she's, she just keeps doing it. And I'm, I'm probably just going to laugh myself to death here at some point. Yes, well, the great, the great and wonderful Groucho Marx. Who wants to be a member of any club that would allow me to be in it? I mean, that is generally my feeling about most things. <laughs> All of that may just be a way for me to feel better while being excluded from stuff. It's hard to say. <laughs> Fair trade. When I was five, we moved into a house that was basically half old, half new. One half of our house is over a hundred years old and used to be a farmer's house, I think. It was here before our town was even established. About 30 years ago, when the suburb was being developed, they didn't want to just tear the old half down since it was in good shape, so they just tore one side off and added on to it. Now we've got the old house, and the rest of the house is just slapped onto the side. Anyways, the house is old. The land is old, and there's history here. I'm the only person with a bedroom in the old half of the house. All the other bedrooms are in the new half. The very first night we were all sleeping in the new house, I woke up in the middle of the night. This was odd, since I've always been a ridiculously heavy sleeper, even when I was little. But I just woke up, and it was like someone had just put knowledge into my head. I knew that there was something I had to do, that it was on me. I grabbed my nanny stuffed animal I loved very much more than anything else in the world, and climbed out of bed. I went downstairs, then into the basement. 
As I came down the steps of the basement, I saw several small balls of bright blue light that were moving around. There were about seven to ten of them, each about half the size of a soccer ball and about a foot off the floor. They were floating in the air, but it wasn't a light, easy floating. It felt like people standing in a meeting, maybe shifting around a bit or moving around to get to their spot, but it all felt very purposeful. I felt their attention on me, that they were watching me to see what I would do. They arranged themselves into a rough half-circle, leaving me access to the middle. Somehow I knew that they wanted some kind of sacrifice. Well, not sacrifice, really. I don't know what word to use. Payment? Token? Offering? Gift? It was like they expected me to give them something simply because of what they were, because of their importance. It was like the same way a king would expect an emissary to bring a gift. They wanted something valuable and important to me. So I gave Nani one last hug and kiss and carefully set her down in the middle of the half circle, which was about the middle of the room. As soon as I did that, it felt settled, like a contract had been signed. So I went up to my room and went to sleep. The next morning, before my parents woke up, I went downstairs to see what had happened, and Nani was gone. I have to explain something really quick. Throughout the experience, I didn't feel scared or happy or sad or anything, but sort of matter-of-fact. It was just like, okay, this is what's happening. This is what I have to do. It felt very businesslike. I think I bought protection or something for our house. In the time we've lived here, there were times where, due to weather, we definitely should have had flooding or power problems or water problems or something. But we've always been fine. This is especially odd because according to the guy who inspected our house a couple years ago, when my parents were thinking about selling, the builder for the new side did a shitty job with subpar materials. And by all rights, that side should be basically falling apart. But it's fine. Additionally, we've never had serious illness or injury in the house or on the property, despite four klutzes living here. No mishaps with fire or nails or such, nothing falling over and breaking, and no animal attacks or bites, despite several mean dogs that belong to guests. I don't know if I'm just crazy and we're lucky. I don't know, maybe if it was all just a weird kid's dream. I don't know if this is just ridiculous. But that's what I experienced, and that's all I know. It felt very real to me. So, Paul, this is a really interesting story. This might actually be my favorite from here just, just because of the, frankly, fey nature of it. Like, mm. this odd ceremonial feel to it. And it also reminded me, I have a story from Strange with uh, someone who woke up in the night and she saw the same thing. She saw, like, a procession of lights down the corridor as if they were people walking. Mm. And I don't exactly know what's grabbing me about it, but there is this connection to something that feels very old. What, what are your thoughts? Well, yeah. I mean, it's very similar to the experience I had as a child when I saw that scene of the gnome village. Of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As though I was allowed a glimpse into something that I wouldn't normally be aware of. And there's certain parallels with this experience with that. And others that you hear, especially with some of the, the great work that goes on these days in regards to the fey and folklore, especially here in the UK with Joe Hickey Hall and Claire Casely and Kate Hergill Ray researchers that are, are looking into these things and it does seem that they are these kind of experiences of different levels and different entities being involved in different scenes all seem very similar that they're quite fleeting and they seem to happen once but we all seem to be given some kind of glimpse of another world for some reason and what or why or how nobody knows because that's that's frustrating thing 
never seems to repeat itself to people. And, and it destabilizes you. Mm. For some of us, guys like you and me, you spend the rest of your life trying to find your way back in. And some people are lucky enough to have it happen, and, and some people, or most people, I would speculate, are not. Yeah. I remember the aftermath of it, staying up several nights hoping for it to happen again, and it never did. Yeah. I think about the time as a little kid where I had that experience where the elevator opened up and showed me something that it couldn't possibly have showed me. And, uh, you know, I, I was maybe seven at the time, four. No, I, I want to say four, because I'm pretty sure my mother was in the hospital after the, the birth of my sister. But mm. just, yeah, I, I think it was after that point I, I took up an interest in ghost shit. I used to read my friend's ghost books, the few ghost books we had in the library in, in you know, my primary school. Mm. And yeah, it just, it gets in. And it's almost like, I, I think I've used this example before, but have you seen the movie Midnight Special with Michael Shannon? No? No, no I haven't. Spoilers for, for Midnight Special. I mean, too bad. It's been out for like 10 years. <laughs> There's this kid who's got this gift. Uh, and this church has kind of co-opted him because they say his gift is prophecy. Mm. But what it turns out is that this kid is actually born of a different civilization who lives parallel to us. Mm. And he just wants to get home. Mm. And eventually he does. And, and for some reason, every time I watch that scene, I just sob. Because for a brief period, there's a natural anomaly that allows mm. for us to see that this other world that exists alongside ours. And for whatever reason, I always cry. And I don't know why. Because it's not, I mean, it's an emotional movie, but it's not like, it's not Field the Dreams, come on. <laughs> it's not Man on Fire, which regularly makes me cry. But yeah, I don't know. And sometimes I wonder if that's part of it, right? Because we've all had that moment of seeing something outside our experience. And I just, I wonder if it calls to us and it makes us long for, a, for maybe a home that we didn't know we had. You know, maybe, maybe that's a place we come from or maybe the place we go to. I don't know. Hmm. Tolkien once said that he believed that the further away we got from nature, the less we understood about these kinds of encounters, or words to that effect. Right. Essentially, when basically lived amongst what we ate and re required, then we were at one with it, and therefore people were more open to having such experiences and had such experiences. And as we've moved further away from that self-sufficiency we've lost that connection with the world around us, be it the Fae or Elementals or Nature Spirits or whatever labour you want to do it. I don't know, some people would say you could say that about Native Americans and First Nation tribes and their relationship with Bigfoot and Sasquatch and creatures of that regard, that a lot of them regard them as, as guardians of the, of the woods or the spirit guardians of that realm. And I think there's a lot, especially in this era now where people are looking at folklore and tradition in a more mature and nuanced way that they've not had the the scientific snobbery that men of enlightenment have been pushing for 300 years that you know these people are full of village idiots and it's all superstitious <laughs> nonsense and and such like that now because of the way the world is more people are wanting and yearning not fully you know i'm sure there's a lot of people out there who are very in touch with their spiritual side who are quite apt to streaming as well, you know, and listening to music on their digital devices. I don't think they want all of it, but I just think they just don't need the noise and the clutter of the modern world in every other aspect of modern life. I would count me among those people. I love streaming platforms. I love movies. I love music. I love high definition pornography delivered to me in an instant. <laughs> 
I said to get him to laugh, folks. I, I need it. Paul's laughter is like a, like a narcotic. I got to make him laugh every now and again. But um, and cheap jokes, you know, I, I'm not above that. But at the same time, you know, I wouldn't mind not feeling the pressure to like upgrade your phone every couple of years, you know, like have obsolescence built into everything. To just be able to sit with something and know you have enough. I was actually thinking about this recently because I, I uh, subscribed to the Substack for this journalist. Uh, he's actually a Welsh journalist, a guy named Yoan Grillo. He is a mm. Welsh journalist based out of Mexico City. And he reports a lot on organized crime in South America and across the mm. world. He's a really, really interesting guy. But mm. I was reading an article of his on fentanyl production mm. and how some of the, the steps law enforcement is making to try and stop that. And he was talking about a port and he said, it's one of the busiest ports in the world. And I don't remember where it was, but it was in South America and I'd never heard of it. And he talks about the sheer number of ships going in and out of this one port. And I, I think I've told you the story of back when I was working at the government about 15, 16 years ago with the fax machine. It was the time for the marks to come in and we had to enter mm. all the new marks. And these teachers were just faxing in page after page of updates on, you know, kids' grades. And I kept having to feed these fax machines, reams and reams of paper. And I suddenly stepped outside the situation and I thought, Jesus, we're just one office. And we're going through five, 10 reams of paper a day. And once we're done, they just, you know, they go in the recycling, but you know, it's a one use thing. And I, and I just kind of stepped out and I thought, Jesus, how many offices are doing this right now? And you really get a sense of our consumption when you get your head around that. And I was thinking, as I read this article by Yoan Grillo, thinking about this one port, one port, which is okay. It's one of the busiest ports in the world, but it's still just one port and the vast amount of ships that come in and out of there. And you think about the waste and the noise and the fuel spillage. And you, again, extrapolate that out on, on the number of ports and you realize it's just another example of how far we've come or how far away we've gone from the natural world, from that, that sort of, I don't want to say state of grace because, you know, we're humans, humans suck uh, to a certain degree, no matter how close to nature we are, but just how far away we've come from anything even approaching a state of grace. Or I do think sometimes it's, it's no wonder we feel distant and we can't necessarily understand these experiences anymore because the world that spawns them, the world that spawned us is so distant. Yeah. It's difficult sometimes. You can just feel like you're a rubber duck in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. Lost. Yeah. There's, and there's no way to get anywhere. You're just being bounced about forever until you shuffle off this mortal coil. You know, and we, we see it in every, you know, countries all around the world. It's like some people are quite happy to see the world burn for whatever reason. I was watching a program yesterday that was talking about apocalyptic events and, and why there is a real train of thought now that human interaction with the environment is causing serious earthquakes and, and putting environmental stresses, especially some of the incidents that have happened in China over the years and Libya in the last couple of days, which is awful to read about. Entire communities washed into the sea because two, I mean, who builds two dams through a city? It does raise questions. I mean, Jesus, wet. I know Libya is not particularly prone to earthquakes, but it still has them. But, oh God, Bennett, and it's, it's just horrific, you know, and it just seems like wherever you look around the world, this is following on from the horrific events that happened in Morocco on Monday. Yeah, that was that It's was just been a, awful. a dreadful week for the north of Africa. And, and then over here, we've got people whinging because it's 30 degrees <laughs> and they can't get in a beer garden on a Saturday afternoon. In fairness, I was one of those people complaining, so let's not be too harsh. Uh, well, I, I had a, well, to be fair, I had a lovely seat. I was got my hat on. A <laughs> couple of pints. <laughs> All was good. And, and, you know, I think that's actually a really good note to end on because I think a lot of folks 
are like that, you know, that we're, especially given the times and all the things we've described, we're kind of adrift. And I think it's not uncommon to feel that way. And I think if you, if you do feel adrift like that, folks, just seize on the good things, the people you love, mm. the good things that are happening. Those are the things to focus on. Again, batshit's going to happen and you can't ignore it, but you also can choose not to let it rule you. And I think cling to those good things like you would a life preserver. And sometimes those currents do deliver you safely back to the land. And I think if enough of us do those things, I think we all stand a good chance of getting there together. And to be fair, I think right now, you've never had a better chance to be able to follow your own path inside the constraints of what the world wants it to be. We've got the ability and the tools and the support from a, a fully connected world to be able to make our own way in the world without conforming to what people want us to be. And long may that part of the modern world continue. So you too can start a podcast. <laughs> All right, folks, that has been our Spirits of the Earth show. We hope you enjoyed yourself. We are going to take a quick break and we'll be right back with our Ghost Force shoutouts. Hey there, listeners. Before you reach for that skip 15 seconds ahead button, I promise you this isn't an ad. We wanted to take a minute to talk to you about mental health. On this show, I've always tried to be as honest and open as possible about my struggles with depression and anxiety, because even though we've come a long way towards acknowledging the very real damage these things can do, there is still way too much lingering stigma about reaching out for help. And when you start to feel like there's no help, it's easy to start feeling like there's no hope. But Paul has joined me today to remind you there is always hope and there's always help. We're not going to try and talk you out of self-harming right now because we know that's not how it works. Instead, what we wanted to do was tell you something now and hope that should things get bad, you'll remember it and make a phone call or send a text message before you make any permanent decisions. As someone who knows all too well just how important mental health can be. It's never too late to reach out. In Canada, the number to call is 133-456-4566. In the USA, the new number to call is 988. That's 988. In the UK, the number to call is 116-123 or text SHOUT. That's S-H-O-U-T to 85258. In Australia, the number to call is 131114. However bad shit seems, it will pass. And no matter what your brain might be telling you at any given moment, and believe me when I say I know this intimately, there are people who love you and people who care deeply about how you treat yourself. Should a time come when you find yourself despairing, Please know that we've both been where you are, and there is a way back to the world. Take care. Welcome back. Thanks, as always, to Luke, Sarah, Anthony, Joseph, and Adam, all of whom are part of the Ghost Story Guys family. Don't forget to check out Luke's podcast, Luke Lore, everywhere fine podcasts live, 
Joseph is host of The Cardinal Rule about Arizona Cardinals football. You can find that on YouTube and in the show notes. And Adam, of course, co-hosts Weekly Creep with Dulce. And then we cannot forget, thanks as always, to my friend and co-host, the one, the only, the inimitable Paul Bestel, host of Mysteries and Monsters. Paul, what's coming up on Eminem? Uh, well, I'll be uh, diving into the ongoing investigations in regards to the Pascagoula incident, which is obviously a bit more uh, tinged with sadness with Calvin Parker's recent passing. Um, but we'll be looking at the, the continued stream of new information that turns up and things I never knew. Um, like a Norwegian pop star wrote a song about Calvin Parker. Oh. That was a bit of a banger. And the uh, Scandinavian club scene a few years ago, and um, okay. how Philip found out that somebody bought a box of original blue book investigation documents off an American auction site, um, and they were the original documents, just boxes and boxes of them. Oh wow! Because um, apparently people took work home who worked on Project Blue Book, so there may be lots of that. So we've got that coming up, and then um, John LeMay returns. As we talk about witchcraft in New Mexico. Very cool. And where can everyone find you online? You can find Mysteries and Monsters across all streaming platforms and all social media networks, regardless of what they decide they're called these days. <laughs> Excellent. I'm largely the truth on uh, several of those networks, uh, Instagram, Threads, and Blue Sky. Uh, I'm also on Twitter, but I don't use the account anymore, uh, although you feel free to follow me if you like. You can also find the Ghost Story Guys uh, Instagram account at the Ghost Story Guys. And my other show is Weird Together. That's a horror movie podcast co-hosted with Joseph Camo. We talk about the latest and greatest in independent horror films. Uh, although on the most recent episode that just came out, we talked about uh, a British film that's a couple years old, but I just think is great and more people should watch. And that is a, a paranormal gangster drama called Bull. Really Really great movie starring Neil Maskell, who you might recognize from the new Idris Elba series Hijack on Apple TV. Uh, Maskell plays one of the hijackers, I think the lead hijacker. But uh, very, very good neo-noir with a paranormal twist. And again, you can find that, uh, well, wherever you rent your movies, and you can find Weird Together on podcast platforms everywhere. As we said at the top of the show, we couldn't do what we do without our patrons and Apple Podcast subscribers. Without those fine folks... This show would not exist. So thank you, thank you, thank you. And if you want to join the team and help support what we do, head to patreon.com slash ghoststoryguys. That's patreon.com slash ghoststoryguys. We have all kinds of digital rewards. We have bonus conversations between me and Paul. We have our monthly live stream. We have, uh, yeah, tons of great stuff. Hours and hours and hours of content both come out every month and are in the bonus, pardon me, the back catalog. And if you don't want to deal with Patreon's uh, stupid, stupid interface, and hey, I get it, you can sign up and you get pretty much everything that you get there via GSG Premium on Apple Podcasts. And of course, if you support the show at the $20 level and above, that makes you part of an elite club. That makes you part of a little something we call Ghost Force. <laughs> That's right. Patrons at the $20 level and above get thanked here, in this segment, by whatever name they choose, because by God, for money, I'll do it. I will say literally anything, okay, maybe not anything, but pretty close to anything. Absolutely. Yep. 
Yeah, we will say terrible, terrible things. As they're about to find yep, out. Yep, there was there was a surprise in this month's lineup, <laughs> which you are about to hear. This is your chance. Have some fun with us. Not like that. <laughs> This time around, the members of Ghost Force are... Atham Saragon. Amy Chamberlain. Big Titty Kitty. (laughs) Brent wears a pink tutu. Carrie Lambertus. Cheryl Baker. Crazy Mom. C.T. Generic Pop. Hella Brown. Hammer Siemens. Hillary DeSassur. Jade Morse. Jason R. Slaughter. Slaughter, 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 Slaughter. Jennifer Mallet. Jennifer Sharko. Jessica Arlinder. Joseph Como. Kimberly Hansen. Maddie Leatherman. Mara Noriega. Mark Simler. Merlin Hansen. Michael Carney. Nickler. Peter Guns 08.5. Rebecca Brink. Robin Tien. Rockin' Ronnie Shenanigans. Rosman Riquez. Samantha Ellis. Shannon Steyer. Clint Cannon. You are the few. You are the spooky. You are <laughs> Ghost Force. <laughs> For real, guys, thank you so, so much. You're incredibly generous, and we deeply, deeply appreciate it. And if you want to have your name read out in that nonsense crazy pants segment, you too <laughs> can head to... All you got to do is head to patreon.com slash ghost story guys and click on, well, it's, it's the tier is ghost force, but you could call it also, we will sacrifice our dignity for money, but ghost force sounds cooler. Hmm. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I will sacrifice my dignity for money. Hey, uh, I mean, you you read big titty kitty. So I took land for the team because I can. That's right. Again, if you want to follow us on social media, we are on Instagram as The Ghost Story Guys. We are on Facebook as Ghost Story Guys. And we also have a Facebook group. We would love to see you come by. The group is called The Ghost Story Guys. Finally made a group. And we'll, you'll find a link in the show notes. You just ask to join. We had to do that because we were getting a bunch of bullshit bots. But uh, we'll let you in. We've got a great community of people. Lots of funny stuff. It's just a hoot. And again, that's Facebook as The Ghost Story Guys. Finally made a group. When you get asked to join as well, don't send a message that says why can't i join oh have you been getting that i only got it once and i just pressed the right answer i assume that's delete it was yeah Yeah, that's fair yeah we're if you remember if you're a dick to us we're under no obligation to reply i get enough of that in the real world (laughs) yeah sometimes sometimes most you know 99 percent of what we get is positive but every now and again there's something and i think how do you want me to respond to that? Do you think I'm going to respond to that? Do, why would I engage? We have thousands of listeners. Why would I engage with one person going, hey, you fucking suck? Yeah. Don't do it. I will find you. <laughs> Paul has a very particular set of skills. I have. Our theme song, Radio, Into the Darkness We Go, is composed and performed by Peter Kurtzov of Pizanta Music. Find more from him at, uh, or by ser- find more from him by searching for Pizanta Music wherever you get your tunes. Pizanta Music and all of Peter's other projects are streaming courtesy of Night Harvest Recordings. That is, of course, the Ghost Story Guys house label. Find more information at nightharvestrecordings.com. Finally, shout out to our composer, Jerry Smith. Jerry's a musician and film journalist from Central California. You can find his music streaming as both Street Witch and Rainy Days for Ghosts. And I guess that's going to do it. We'll be back next week. But until then... 
into the darkness we go. kind of idiot that always stands next to me when I dare to venture outside to watch sport. <laughs> like the kind of people who are waiting for me in that pub in Croydon. <laughs> yes. The Moss Isley Cantina. I would rather go to Moss Isley. There were fewer racists in Moss Isley Cantina. Every person who's ever uttered a, a racial slur on a Facebook post in England was in that bar. And they just turned <laughs> to look at me as one when I went in there. And I, afterwards, I, I walked in. And they all just looked at me like they were a hive mind. And I walked right back out. And I went back to the hotel. And I said to the guy at the counter, I said, hey, not for nothing. I wouldn't send people to that bar. And the guy says to me, oh, yeah. He said, I went there once and they wouldn't serve me. Why the fuck did you send me there, man? Do you guys have some kind of group bet about how many tourists you can have beaten to death so you can get to keep their stuff? Jesus. Is it called the pie and mash? It, it's called the piss and take. The severed finger. The dirty knacker. <laughs> It really was. Oh God. The yeah, I'm not even gonna try. But it was it was The Soiled Bar Stool. At the very least. Jehesius Christ, <laughs> what a place. The shitty bog. <laughs> also correct. Also correct. What a horror show. Oh, probably called The Red Lion or The King's Head. Yeah, I, I actually I, I don't know what it was called. Now I'm curious. Quickly. I know it's Shit, late, but let's, let's find out. It it was a shithole. Yes, I remember the first time I was invited to meet some friends who'd moved down there and they said, oh, come and meet us in this certain pub in East Dulwich. So I got on the tube, got off, and they told me the way to go. And as I got there, it had all been roped off because somebody had just been murdered. Fuck. I was, I was very annoyed because it made me 15 minutes later. <laughs> where, have you, where have you brought me here, pal? <laughs> you know, they say it's grim up north. I've never, had, I've never been stopped going to the pub for a murder yet. <laughs> You know, I've seen a few street brawls. Saw a man with a machete dive through the... a try to dive through a taxi cab. Mm, mm, yeah, yeah, you know. We went to Brixton. First time I've ever seen a crack lasso used was in Brixton, and that was at 7 o'clock in the evening. Did you see a crack lasso? Yeah, it's the police use them. When they're going after crack dealers, they've got a special lasso they put over people's heads because the dealers swallow the gear, and it's to stop them swallowing Jesus the Jesus Christ, I've never heard of this. Because if they swallow it, you've got to wait. 24 hours for it to come out. Right. Oh, man. Because it's all wrapped in cling film, so they're not, like, going to OD on it. Um, so that's what they're doing. It. So it's basically just stops them swallowing. Jesus Christ. You know, we sat there. Lovely, lovely, lovely summer's eve. Just got his first pint. Sat down outside, having a cigarette in those days. Crazy days. And then all of a sudden, next thing. And this Think about chuffing I was going on like a lion tail. <laughs> What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today.